Six Degrees of Benjamin Harrison. You're listening to part one of a special two-part episode of Six Degrees of Benjamin Harrison. I'm your host, Molly Boser, a history student and the Russell and Penny Fortune Project POTUS Presidential Fellow at the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site, located in Indianapolis, Indiana. As a forewarning, some of the content of this episode, particularly related to the crime scene descriptions, may be disturbing to younger listeners. September 1868. A young couple are found brutally murdered and left on the bank of the White River in what is known as Cold Spring, located just north of the city of Indianapolis. What became known as the Cold Spring murders fascinate and shock to this day. Why? Well, for one thing, a curious suspect was at the center of the investigation, a woman named Nancy Clem, known to many as a savvy and independent businesswoman, but in reality helping to run a massive, illegal financial enterprise among prominent Indianapolis citizens, similar to the modern Ponzi scheme. Do we really know what happened? What's Nancy Clem's involvement in this case? How in the world does Benjamin Harrison factor in? How do we explore this story at the Benjamin Harrison presidential site in the present day? Here to answer these questions and delve into the intrigue and confusion surrounding this still unsolved case are two longtime partners with the Benjamin Harrison presidential site, Donna Wing and Jim Trofeter. Donna Wing is the creative director of the Candlelight Theater Company, which has been partnering with the presidential site over 18 years to create unique theater experiences using the 23rd president's home as a stage and backdrop. Jim Trofeter is the resident playwright for the Candlelight Theater Company and has written on the very subject we're addressing today numerous times for the company, examining the guilt or innocence of Nancy Clem and the role of the then future president, Benjamin Harrison, and how that would play out in the events. Also joining the conversation, Charlie Hyde, President and CEO of the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site. We welcome and thank our guests, and without further ado, let's consider for ourselves the case of the Cold Spring Murders and Nancy Clem. First, here's Charlie. Well, but before Jim gets started, um, can, can I just add here, um, Donna and Jim are just really exceptional people. So Donna is creative director for Candlelight Theater and has been just a phenomenal partner to us at the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site over many years, helping inspire this really uh, powerful partnership. And then Jim just has such a stunning creative mind um, as a playwright and really capturing these stories and getting them down on paper so that they can come out in words um, and a, new, a number of different iterations that we've done over the years. So I know that we're gonna touch upon that a little bit later um, not just the core story, but then how that's been translated um, through these productions and through this partnership with Candlelight Theater and the presidential site. So I'm sorry, Jim, please jump right in. That's okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so in September 12th, 1868, a murder took place. And it took place at, at, at the time at which the Cold Spring, and we all know Cold Spring Road in Indianapolis, Cold Spring actually came out of the ground and entered the White River. And it was a frequent, frequented spot by lots of people, uh, especially some unsavory types um, during that time. And what's interesting is that there are so many people that at some level witnessed the event, but not quite. And so this event came to light, you know, the next day when the bodies were found and thus started a trail of intrigue and confusion 
that still goes on to this day. And so what happened to people, Nancy Jane Young and um, Jacob Young, were murdered along the White River. And there were clues left at the scene of who could have possibly done it. There were clues throughout Indianapolis of people leaving who left the clues. There was a relationship between Nancy Clem, Jacob Young, and another man, William Abrams, doing some type of money-raising business that no one ever found out what they did. Huge amounts of money in those days. I mean, we're talking, you know, maybe twenty to $70,000 transfers at one time, which today would, would be millions upon millions of dollars in, in equivalent cash. And so this murder was interesting because immediately after the murder, Nancy Clem became a suspect, which is really amazing that they were able to tie it back to her so quickly. And they did it through William Abrams, because as far as, as everyone can tell, William Abrams brought a shotgun. He bought it at a local um, business somewhere around um, uh, right down the middle downtown on Maryland Street. And the gun had a specific defect with it, which is very interesting. You know, it had a broken, what they call broken thimble. Part of the, the trigger on the back was broken. And they left the gun at the scene. Why would you leave such a unique piece of equipment at a murder scene? It's very interesting. So that's part of, you know, what Donna will talk about later on as well. There just seems too many coincidences here. And so what led was a whole series of circumstantial evidence around a crime. People being associated with people, being seen sort of in the right location at the right times. And so Benjamin Harrison came on board with the prosecuting team in the first trial. And Nancy Clem was being tried for Jacob's murder. And he didn't really participate a lot in the first trial. He actually sort of took a back seat while the uh, other attorneys did the work. And I'm pretty sure that he was convinced that it was a closed, uh, open and shut case that they had enough evidence, at least circumstantial evidence, that pointed so much at Nancy Clem and William Abrams and her brother, uh, and Nancy Clem's brother, Silas, that there wasn't really any need, I don't think, for him to step in. And then the first trial results came back with a hung jury, and he, I'm sure he was floored. He could not understand what, what happened here. And so they decided to retry her on Nancy Jane Young's murder. And he came in, and he was the prominent uh, attorney in that case. And they, in those cases, they interviewed our, uh, on the witness stand over 100 people, which is just phenomenal for a murder case or for any case, really. Think about it. And so there was huge amounts of information that was available for everyone to look at. And unfortunately, because they had so many people, there was huge amounts of discrepancy about what happened that day. And so you find that Nancy was in one place at one time and at the same place she was, she was also somewhere across town at the same time. And yet people are very clear about what they saw. Well, Her brother. Jim, Jim, was this further complicated just by the, the widespread exposure of the case itself? I think so. You know, the case became national because it was a woman being tried for first degree murder, which is really unheard of, um, you know, a woman being involved in such a brutal crime. Um, in Indiana, especially. And so, you know, yeah, it, it, this received national attention uh, immediately. I mean, it was across the board, across the country immediately. And so when Benjamin Harrison came onto this trial, his name became a national name. So this really put Benjamin Harrison on the map. People knew him before in Indiana and maybe, you know, other people from the Civil War, but this really placed Benjamin on the map. Um, 
So again, they, they were interviewing all these people and her brother was in one place and also another place at the same time. And so there was this confusion. And what it turns out, it seems, is even though Nancy, uh, Donna will come back later and say this was not planned, this, whatever happened was very well planned. But from what I could see is that what happened was Nancy and her brother on specific days did specific things. Took a horse out, a specific horse out on a buggy ride in a certain direction. They then took a similar horse out on another day in a different direction. And what they did was they created confusion because people can't think about dates. Unless they say, did you see this person on Saturday? And all they'll remember is, yes, I saw that person recently and they were driving this, this buggy, this horse. And so people weren't really sure the days that they saw, but because the murder took place on Saturday, everyone came back and said, oh, this murder took place on Saturday. This is where I saw him this Saturday. But then someone else said, no, I saw him here on this Saturday in the same horse. And so what happened was confusion was created by those two going into stores, making sure they were seen at specific locations at the same time on specific days. And so what happened is that people, I think, got confused. But the confusion, because everyone wanted it to be on the day that the murder took place, everyone said, this is when it happened. Because in those days, you didn't have receipts with dates on it and times on it and things like that. So when she goes in and buys something at a store on that Saturday, she says, well, I bought this at the store on Saturday. There's no receipt that says, you know, September 12th. It doesn't, there's nothing there at three, you know, at 3 p.m. or something like that. And so you have all this information coming in. And then you also have Nancy, who's a very intelligent woman, who was uh, an independent business person. She had her own rental homes that she had from her first marriage that she got money from. And, she, and according to Indiana law at that time, as long as she declared that her properties would always be kept separate from her husband's, her recent husband's, she was allowed to have her properties. Otherwise, if she married her husband and they didn't have that sort of, it's almost like a prenuptial, she would have lost her properties to him. So she had, she was an independent businesswoman at a time when women really weren't independent businesswomen. Okay? Well, no, that was part of the intrigue of the whole case, right? That um, with all these happenings and money laundering and business dealings and everything else, her husband was a fairly well-respected grocer and had no inkling of any of this happening whatsoever. Right. Yeah. There's no inkling that the case. Right. Yeah. So there's no inkling that he had any clue that she was doing all this money, the, the money work. She, he understood the, the rental properties and things like that, but he had no clue about. And so it blindsided him when this happened. I'm sure. Now, he now, didn't. now Molly, you, you're probably going to ask this question of, of Donna in a bit here, but Donna, you, you've, you've studied this case, too, um, over the years, and you've gotten to portray Nancy. Um, how, how intertwined do you feel like her business dealings were, illicit or otherwise, with this case? Oh, very, very. Uh, because we know that Nancy was involved with some type of illicit business dealings. We don't know, as Jim said, what they were. Uh, was it a Ponzi scheme? Was it loan sharking? Did she initiate? She um, stated that she was approached by Nancy Jane Young because uh, Nancy Jane knew she had some money and her husband sent her to ask her to invest it. Did something turn on her? Was she the culprit um, as far as the design of the scheme? And we don't even know what the scheme is. I mean, money would just appear in people's bank accounts. And it's like, how did it get there? And like Jim said, 40, 50, $60,000 in a year. And to put this in perspective, in the 1860s, a woman who was a nurse or a school teacher's 
pay was $15 a year. And this woman is handling tens of thousands of dollars. So that puts it in perspective. This is almost closer to a billion today. <laughs> so um, the fact that she already had this, she was strong-willed, independent. She even stated, my financial affairs are my own. That you add that to the fact that we've got now this murder that involves some shady business dealings and that sets it up you know, for her guilt. Yeah. For involvement, I should say. Right. And you could see the money flow between the three, between William Abrams, Nancy, and Jacob. You could see the money flow from one bank account to the other bank account. So it definitely does look like a Ponzi type scheme where $2,000 would come out of this bank account to go into someone else's bank account so that they could pay off someone else whose loan was coming due. And they had, they, they had huge, you know, they told the people that if they invested with them, they would get huge returns on their money. So that sounds like a, a that does sound like a Ponzi scheme. And so some of the what's going on here is that Jacob was starting to get tired of doing this work. But Jacob was a very good, smooth talker. So he could convince people to get them to give him money. And he decided he really didn't want to do it anymore. So there's, there's that level of, well, Jacob knows a lot. And he's leaving and he's our money, major moneymaker. Something's going on. And so it's, it may be very well that his murder was set up because he knew too much. Um, it's a possibility because there seem to be other people involved that were never tried, at least from what I can see. But we also know that the, the day before the murder, and I believe the morning of the murder, he was waving around large amounts of money to a, a lot of people. And anybody, and, and again, I, I think that there was planning in this, not necessarily involving Mrs. Clem, but it still could have been um, a just a, a, on the spur. You know, someone seeing him with money, they need money and they go out so um, and, and follow him to Cold Spring Road. So the fact is he was very brazen about the amount of money he was carrying. Right. And why he was doing that that day, you know, around that day, it also doesn't make any sense. Why is he waving around all this money? Why is he drawing attention to himself at this time? But then we get to the day and the events and we have people saying Nancy was in the carriage with them as they were going out. You know, someone who was coming in from Crawfordsville and passed them around two o'clock in the afternoon saying, yes, that was Mrs. Clem. I've known her all my life. I saw her with them. And then they said, well, yeah, and we saw Silas driving about a quarter of a mile behind them on another, in another carriage alone um, and turned his head away when he, I was driving by him. So there appears to have been that they were out there that day. But then you have someone else who says, no, they were out on the Pendleton Pike, complete opposite side of town around one o'clock going out the, the Pendleton Pike at, you know, at the second the toll booth, the fees, the Mr. and Mrs. Fees said they, he passed through around one o'clock. What's interesting is they never asked when he came back through the gate. How could he get back into Indianapolis if he never came back through the gate on, on, on Pendleton Pike? That's a question they never asked. Did you see him come back into town? If not, how did he get back into Indianapolis that day? So there's a bunch of questions that were never asked, a bunch of, and, and a lot of information that was parsed through the trial. And I'm sure the jurors were confused. You know, they, they, and, and Nancy had, unfortunately, Nancy did a little bit of witness tampering, it seems. She got her, one of her uh, servants to lie for her. Um, but then you don't know what she, if that servant ever told the truth, because 
I think she was, I'm not sure if she was coerced afterwards, but she said, oh, no, I lied in the first trial. It's like, oh, my God, you know, then then what's true anymore? Well, um, it's, it's, it's so fascinating, you know, digging into to some of this minutia. There's, there's a book that came out a few years ago called The Notorious Mrs. Clem that dug into more of these details and looked at um, maybe some of the, um, the prejudices of the time looking at uh, women's business dealings and what role women had in larger society, especially related to business, which at the time was seen um, as more of, um, um, more of a male role in society. And it was a very conflicted time. So, I mean, all of these questions swirled around this controversy. And Jim, as you said, it kind of brought it to national attention because, you know, it, it asked these questions whether um, such a crime could be committed by a woman, um, the nature of the crime and how just terribly gruesome it was with burned bodies and, um, you know, shot with a shotgun and a pistol um, that allegedly Nancy had but was never found. Um, just very sensational, as you said, you know, certainly brought all participants to national attention, including um, you know, future president, Benjamin Harrison. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so Benjamin, and so the trials keep going on. So there ended up actually being four trials, um, two of which ended in hung juries and two of which ended convictions. But what's interesting is that there were technicalities that had gone on with the trial that indicated that something was wrong. And so she was let off because of the technicalities in the trial. So like one, one trial, the judge had said, we need you to come back on a verdict on first degree murder. And they came back with one on second degree murder because they would never hang a woman for first degree murder at that time. Okay. And so, but that's not what the instructions were. The instructions were to come back. Is she guilty of first degree murder or not? And because that was not what they were asked, it came back as that's not right. Um, and therefore um, she was released. So she really never spent time in jail other than the time she was originally in jail with uh, at the beginning. If I'm uh, not mistaken, first. I think she was tried five times. Yeah, the fifth time they tried to, I think, get the, the going. But what happens is the county of uh, Marion said, we're not going to pay. I think it was, they moved the case out of Marion County. And you're right. I think that they decided that they just wouldn't try it because it had gotten too expensive and yeah. too fraught. <laughs> yeah, it was just because you're just going to see. And, and again, all the trials had the same information. And again, people refined their information over time because of what they heard from other people and read. The papers published almost word for word the testimonies. So people had access to what was said. And that's how I got to play information is I went back and looked at the actual testimonies. Unfortunately, they didn't have the questions that they asked. They just had the answers. So you have to make up the questions. So that's okay. from there. <laughs> Go back and do some detective work. Now that you have had a chance to listen to some of the details of the case of the Cold Spring murders, continue listening to the story by tuning into part two of this special edition of Six Degrees of Benjamin Harrison as we examine the character of Nancy Clem further and the question of her guilt or innocence. You can also catch the story of Nancy Clem and the Cold Spring murder case live this summer with a Candlelight Theater Company, which presents Not Guilty by Jim Trofeter to be performed in July of 2021 at the presidential site. To reserve your tickets, check out the visit tab on our website, presidentbenjaminharrison.org. I'd like to extend another thank you to our guests for this episode, Donna Wing, Jim Trofeter, and Charlie Hyde for their time and expertise. This interview was conducted in fall of 2020, audio quality presented by the need to record remotely for pandemic safety. 
For more stories related to the life and legacy of the Hoosier 23rd president, check back for more episodes of Six Degrees of Benjamin Harrison, available wherever you get your podcasts.